It's a delight of high order that we each have been given on the close of this Lord's Day, this first day of the week, to assemble in the name of the God of heaven, and to do so with a desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and to lift up high the, not only His name, but all the things that surround His holy and divine will. As was mentioned at the outset of the announcements tonight, we're certainly appreciative of the presence of not only our membership, but also the visitors who have come our way this evening. And we're hopeful that all that is done and said will be encouraging and uplifting to all of us as we proceed to strive to walk the golden street of that which is pleasing to God this week. Over the last couple of Sunday evenings at least, we have given our attention to a series of lessons dealing with the matters related to the translations of the Bible. We understand, in fact, by nature of those lessons so far, that a number of things have already become sorely and tragically stated to be true, and perhaps there's some of those things we have already known about even until that time. For example, we've learned that, sadly, one can actually find things, books that have the word Bible written on the front of them, that in fact do not teach the truth of God. They teach a particular doctrine that the human family has chosen to teach. They teach perhaps a particular idea or slogan or motto that some particular denomination might prefer. But they were not true, of course, to the original text as the God of heaven delivered it. Among some of the other things that we've also seen in this series of lessons have been issues related to what we can see about the middle of that statement. The original autographs and those original documents that the God of heaven inspired truly are remarkable and we noted that we can appreciate the reliability and the credibility that still goes with those autographs and those faithful translations that in fact would come from them. But that does bring us to not only tonight's lesson but some that will follow in which we will attempt to look at a few specific translations perhaps making note of some of the ways in which certain things have been rendered, and also to call to, into question some of the ways in which they have attempted to present things. In fact, tonight, we'll turn our attention to two translations, the so-called GNB, the Good News Bible, as well as the one I've labeled CPB, the Cotton Patch Bible. In each instance, as we look at these, our desire will simply be to look at what those translators have chosen to present and to, in fact, make comparison between what they have said with some of the other things found in what we understand to be the revealed and almighty things that God has told us. It is with that in mind that let's first take them in order and look at this so-called Good News Bible. Its name is a bit of a misleading thing, I think, as we'll soon see. Good News... The word gospel, of course, in the original language means good news and anything that God reveals ought to be such. But these translators have in fact done us no favor. I've listed first of all a few things that perhaps are a bit of a curiosity about the so-called good news Bible. Another way in which it has often been referenced is the TEV. It's called today's English version. And you'll notice that Dr. Robert Bratcher was the primary force behind the presentation, the translation of it. And in that set of years, you'll notice, stated there near the top, he labored to put this forth in the middle part of the 1960s and on into the early part of the 1970s. And as the TEV came before us, I would ask you to notice a few things about it. 
The American Bible Society labored at length to promote and endorse this particular translation. In fact, they often gave them away free, and on other occasions they sold them by the cartons for a quarter apiece. All the while, they became a very widely distributed translation of the Word of God, or so one might think. As we give thought to some of the things about it, I would submit to you that one can learn often a great deal about a particular translation by looking at the preface or foreword that the translators wrote so that one can gain an idea about their handling of the Word of God, the motivation that they utilized, and the particular translation philosophy that they used. Such might well be true about Mr. Robert Bratcher. Rather than to share something, however, from the statement that he made in the preface, I chose to share something with you in a speech that he made. In fact, on this particular occasion in March of 1981, from a speech that he delivered in Dallas, Texas, listen to his description of the Word of God. I think we can learn a great deal about his philosophy concerning the Scriptures based only on this, and it should in fact cause us a great deal of wonder as we are shocked that this man would endeavor to translate the Bible. He said, and I quote, Only willful ignorance or intellectual dishonesty can account for the claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. To qualify this absurd claim by adding with respect to the autographs is a bit of sophistry, a spacious attempt to justify a patent error. No truth-loving, God-respecting, Christ-honoring believer should be guilty of such heresy. To invest the Bible with the qualities of inerrancy and infallibility is to idolatrize it, to transform it into a false god. No one seriously claims that all of the words of the Bible are the very words of God. If someone does so, it is only because that person is not willing thoroughly to explore the implications. Even the words spoken by Jesus in Aramaic in the 30s of the first century and preserved in writing do not qualify as the original things delivered by God. Those words were spoken verbatim by a gentleman who undertook this activity of translating the Scriptures and perhaps we won't be shocked as we note some of the ways he handled the sacred text some of the conclusions and the ways in which he translated various passages. For example, I've stated to you that this so-called Good News Bible absolutely endorses salvation by faith alone. I'd like to read to you some passages, and I have attempted to place them there on the slide for your consideration. In Romans 1, verse number 17, we find perhaps one of the first places to which we should turn our attention. You and I recognize that as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, beginning in verse 16, he rather powerfully set forth his premise, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Pausing at the end of verse 17, might I ask you to notice how Dr. Bratcher translated verse 17, that passage that you and I just noted. For the gospel reveals how God puts men right with Himself. It is through faith alone. From beginning to end, as the Scripture says, He who is put right with God through faith shall live. 
Mr. Bratcher, you notice, carefully inserted this word alone as if to emphasize from beginning to end that faith, as this presentation would put it, is through faith alone. You and I noted Paul, however, didn't say it in any way close to that. But let's look again. We might notice also in Romans 3.28, one of those interesting passages occurring near the opening part of the Roman epistle in which Paul highlights salvation through faith. And he puts it in language like this. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's how Paul put it. Let's notice how Dr. Bratcher stated it. For we conclude that a man is put right with God only through faith and not by doing what the law commands. He changed completely the thrust, interpretation, and might behind the reading of Romans 3.28. He changed it completely. Galatians 2.16 is no better. Here he wrote, Yet we know that a man is put right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ, never by doing what the law requires. We can easily imagine if then a sincere individual were interested in knowing what God said to do and you and I were to strive to begin a Bible study with such a person, if they turned to passages like these... There they would in fact oppose many of the cardinal matters and doctrines that you and I know are taught in the Word of God. These three passages that we've just noted found in this Good News Bible, which by now we perhaps should call by a different name than that. But nonetheless, I would ask you to notice Mr. Bratcher comes into deep trouble as we come to the next slide. Because notice the way he translated James 2.24. We've just seen in three passages that he overwhelmingly asserted that salvation is by faith only or by faith alone. And yet when we come to James 2.24, this is what he says. So you see that a man is put right with God by what he does and not because of his faith alone. This man has absolutely contradicted himself. If this passage is right, the other three must be wrong. And if they are right, this one is wrong. We can easily see what a tangled web he wove when he changed what God's Word said. Had he left the text alone and strove not to insert his philosophy, there would have been no troubles. But you notice he has run his ship aground, contradicting himself in what was supposed to be a good news translation of the Bible. However, we mustn't stop there in a way. For in Acts 20, verse number 7, this gentleman has corrupted the teaching of the Lord's Supper. And he did so without apology or without question. In that famous text of Acts 20, verse 7, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them and continued his speech until midnight, the text tells us. We've all noted on many occasions this was on the first day of the week. Notice how Dr. Bratcher translated that verse. On Saturday evening, we gathered together for the fellowship meal. Paul spoke to the people and kept on speaking until midnight since he was going to leave the next day. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? Two obvious things he changed. First of all, he changed it from the first day of the week to Saturday evening. And not only that, rather than Lord's Supper, he called it a fellowship meal. As if this was a common meal with hamburgers and french fries. Again, it's almost more than one can take, isn't it?
And yet, as we give thought to how this particular translation has rendered that one, I've asked you to notice something else. In Acts chapter 12, verse number 9, we encounter a rather interesting occasion in which there were some women who on that occasion were blessed with a particular gift, shall we say. In light of that, I would ask you to notice the way, however, that Dr. Bratcher translated that passage. Now, this was that occasion in which some prophecy took place, but in no way is there a hint of publicity or public matters as it related to it. Dr. Bratcher said, He had four unmarried daughters who preached God's Word. No question leaving the implication that these fill the pulpit, preached in just as public a way as any men had done. He again changed that passage, for that is not the original Greek text, and in fact it is even not even close to it. As you give thought to some of the things about this so-called good news translation, this today's English version, you might also notice just a few other comments as we give some thought to this translation of the Bible. One of the other things that I would call to your attention, it uses some language that you and I might be somewhat shocked to hear about. I say that not in a light way at all. In Acts chapter 8 verse 20, on that occasion as Simon the sorcerer had in fact attempted to purchase or buy this power of laying on the Holy Spirit with his hands, it was Peter who confronted him to the face and in fact rebuked him mightily for that. We perhaps can remember some of the things and some of the language that Paul used, gall of bitterness, bond of iniquity, things like that. That language, in fact, helped Simon to realize he was in the wrong and that he was in error. Notice how Dr. Bratcher translated this verse. May you and your money go to hell for thinking you can buy God's gift of money. Can you imagine the, shall we say, gutterized language that has appeared in this translation of the Bible? Can you perhaps imagine the kind of slang, less than appropriate language that Dr. Bratcher chose to use? One of the words that's characteristic of this kind of translation is a dynamic equivalency. I wrote that on one of those first slides, but I thought that now might be the better time to understand what that means. Those who translate the Scriptures, by and large, proceed by virtue of one of two philosophies. One of them is that word-for-word -word style in which one makes a concerted effort to take what was originally in Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew and simply bring it into English without any attempt to interpret, just to translate. However, Dr. Bratcher chose an interpretation style known as dynamic equivalency, in which he asserted what he thought was equivalent in English to what was originally in those others, and thus he's interpreting. He is asserting what he thought the original text meant. And we've already learned that he wasn't that great a Bible student to corrupt the Lord's Supper, to corrupt the doctrine of faith only, to corrupt the other matters related to these things we've seen here, he's contradicted himself. He clearly was not well qualified along those lines to be a so-called scholar and one who would handle aright the sacred text under the banner of 2 Timothy 2.15. But we might also notice one other thing that perhaps is fair to say. 
when we come to that text in Galatians 1.22 and look at the way in which he changed the way in which the Lord's body is referenced. He has tampered with the very manner in which the body of Christ is described. All this while or all this time, the members of the Christian churches in Judea did not know me personally. He has in fact remarkably changed the text in Greek to make it read like that. That phrase, Christian churches, is not even there top, side, nor bottom. And yet obviously he inserted it in that way, giving the impression that in fact that would be a scriptural name, if you please, for a certain body of believers. Again, that is not in that text of Galatians 1 verse number 22. Perhaps it's appropriate to summarize. I have attempted to pull together what would seem to be an exceedingly fair conclusion. This translation is not a word-for-word -word translation of the, of the original Word of God. It was a tampering. It was a change. It was this means of dynamic equivalency. And what's more, it is thus not a trustworthy and reliable version of the Bible for study, for encouragement of others, and you and I would certainly do well not to lift it high or use it ourselves or even encourage others to do the same. For this translation, again, by virtue of Dr. Bratcher's translation philosophy, changes so many things into originally what God never said. I wonder how many individuals on the Day of Judgment, having perhaps read and believed this, may in fact lose their soul for all eternity because they believe something that He asserted, some doctrine He set forth, some teaching that He taught, all because of His faulty translation philosophy. The Good News Bible, it isn't good news really. In fact, it's not a translation that we should use or encourage others to do either. But what about another translation to which we might turn our attention tonight? Another translation that you and I too can give our attention to. The so-called Cotton Patch Bible. The name is interesting by its own character and nature, but I would submit that the interest of it probably should stop there. Translated by a gentleman named Clarence Jordan, and again did so back in the late 60s and early 70s, this particular translation too is such that we would do well to make some comparisons, draw some conclusions, and let it and its author, that is to say its translator, speak for themselves at least at the outset. And as we do that, one of the first things that I should note to you, this is an exceedingly unique translation of the Bible. Perhaps you've heard of it. Mr. Jordan took the liberty, in fact took the approach, that he desired to produce a translation that would have dialectical properties. That is to say, it would ring loudly and clearly in the dialect appropriate to the southeastern part of the United States of America. And so it is that he wrote it with particularly individuals supposedly like you and me in mind. However, we might say it seemed he particularly had folks living in Georgia in mind, as we'll see in just a moment. Even beyond that, you might notice, I thought just as we did before, we might give thought to one of the statements that this gentleman made as we pay some attention to his translation philosophy and also to some of the things that would be fair to comment about the way he approached the beauty of what should have been the marvelous Word of God. 
Let me read just a few things. First of all, again, this is from Mr. Jordan himself. To say that the Cotton Patch Version translates the Bible freely would be an understatement. Local place names are substituted for biblical ones, and modern-day equivalents of ideas, names, and classes of people are used in place of the actual text. In other words, he lifted the text and changed it into something that he thought would seem more appropriate and at least more understandable to folks living in the southeastern part of the United States of America. First of all, I would ask you to notice that the Cotton Patch Bible alters the names of the apostles in Luke 6, verses 14 to 16. I say that because I'd like to read to you how that text appears, and you can actually read it there. You might be a little bit shocked to hear it. There were Simon, whom he called the Rock, and his brother Andy, Jim and Jack, Phil and Barth, and Matt and Tom, Jim, Alphys, and Simon the Rebel, and Judas, Jameson, and Judas Iscariot, who turned him in. Can you believe that that is actually the rendering of Luke 6, verses 14 and following in this so-called Cotton Patch Bible? He changed the names of the apostles themselves. Isn't it a bit interesting? The only one whose name he didn't change was Judas Iscariot. Maybe that says something about the character of this gentleman, Mr. Clarence Jordan, that translated this. That's the only apostle's name that he didn't alter. You'll also notice beyond that, this Cotton Patch Bible alters a number of the specifics of the Bible. Let me share with you just a few of the things that it alters. I didn't list all of these upon that slide, but you'll no doubt recognize some of the things that I'm about to read. In this cotton patch version of the Bible, Jesus is born in Gainesville, Georgia. Not Bethlehem, Judea. It has Him being born in Gainesville, Georgia. Whereas the sacred scriptures indicate that the Lord, of course, grew up in Nazareth, we understand in this particular passage or in this particular translation, He grew up in Valdosta, Georgia. Quite a difference, wouldn't you say, between Valdosta as we have noted here, and of course that place in Nazareth in the Middle East. Furthermore, Jesus, we understand from the sacred scriptures, was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Immerser. Matthew 3, verses 13 and following. Mr. Jordan has Jesus being baptized in the Chattahoochee River that of course flows south from, from Chattanooga. Furthermore, the Lord often spent some time, and we remember so frequently walking by the Sea of Galilee, in this translation, the Lord walks not by the Sea of Galilee, but by Lake Lanier. Of course, one of the well-known lakes in the state of Georgia. Again, you can see the point. So many of the details, the specifics, the characteristics and qualities, He has chosen to alter. If, we, if you and I look even beyond that, I've listed a few of the verses there at the bottom. Some of the matters concerning Jesus you and I just noted. Let me read to you the way in which Matthew 2.13 is translated. This particular part of the passage is, of course, on that occasion that gives us information about the powerful and lovely birth of Jesus and a number of the events that surrounded it. Mr. Jordan translated that verse like this. After they had checked out, 
The Lord's messenger made connection with Joseph in a dream and said, Get moving and take your wife and baby and highball it to Mexico. Virtually unbelievable, isn't it? We can each understand the desire for the Holy Scriptures, of course, to be understood and to be rightly divided and applied, but let's face it. To change the language to where it sounds as if it were slang and as if it would perhaps be better appearing in some backwoods alley than if one could read it with respect and esteem and appreciation for the inerrant, infallible Word of God. We might again remember some of the statements by Mr. Bratcher earlier. He did not think the Scriptures are infallible. He did not believe them to be inerrant, and he certainly didn't think they were authoritative. It would appear that Mr. Jordan is indeed of a similar quality as he. Furthermore, in Matthew 3, verses 4, 5, and 6, this discussion, of course, surrounds John the Baptist, the character of the kind of man he was, the way he dressed, the food he ate. Listen to the description of John the Immerser. This guy, John, was dressed in blue jeans and a leather jacket, and he was living on cornbread and collard greens. Folks were coming to him from Atlanta and all over North Georgia and the backwater of the Chattahoochee, and as they owned up to their crooked ways, he dipped them in the Chattahoochee River. It should practically bring a tear to anyone's eye who loves the Word of God to hear nonsense like that and to appreciate that someone had the audacity to put in written form these and put the word Bible on the front of it. Perhaps one more. In Matthew 9, verse number 17, a passage that you and I remember was in the heart and core of some of the things the Lord taught about the nature of a person and that to which He should give interest and credence. The Lord, in fact, spoke a many variety of parable on that occasion in a way about putting wineskins, uh, put, putting, of course, the contents into skins and doing so rightly so that it wouldn't burst. This is the way that Mr. Jordan translated it. Nor do people put new tubes in old ball tires. If they do, the tires will blow out and the tubes will be ruined and the tires will be torn up. But they put new tubes in new tires and both give good mileage. Remarkable, isn't it, to hear that presented in the language of Matthew 9, 17? As you and I hear all of these things, isn't it shocking to appreciate that there have been those in days gone by who have not handled the Scriptures very well? In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty and the handling of the Word of God that way. Paul highlighted to those who were his hearers and those that were his auditors in Corinth, we must never handle the Word of God deceitfully or inappropriately. And may I submit these two gentlemen have done exactly that. They have handled it improperly and given the world these things that are not good news at all. Given the world these matters that though they claim to be the Word of God, they really are not. God never said these words that these men have used. How could it thus be called the Word of God? It certainly in all rightfulness could not be. As you give some thought to this Word of God, I thought we'd look at some more things from this Cotton Patch Bible. We all know about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
and the way in which the gospel was flung forward that day, and men and women were given the lovely opportunity to hear it and to respond to it. As Peter drew near the close of that lesson that day in verse 36, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. And about 3,000 who heard that were pricked in their heart. And they cried out in verse 38, Men and brethren, what shall we do? It was Peter on that occasion who by inspiration said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You and I today are still the beneficiaries of the grandeur of that day. The birthday of the church when that precious body of Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew 16, 18, it had its origination, its actual beginning that day. Peter and the eleven, as they stood up and preached, thus opened with proudness the doors of the church and invited men and women to join or rather to become a part of it. And yet as those events took place, listen to how Mr. Jordan translated I'd like you to notice it's a somewhat lengthier passage, but nonetheless, it does speak volumes about the approach this man has taken. The boss said to my boss, Be my right hand while I put even your opponents under your control. Therefore, let all America know beyond any doubt that God has made this same Jesus whom you lynched, both president and leader. Rock said to them, Reshape your lives and let each of you be initiated into the family of Jesus Christ. So your sins can be dealt with and you will receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. I think it would be entirely fair to say that among a host of errors associated with that would be, of course, the names that are rightly used to describe our Savior. President and leader. Notice also the location was specifically designated as America, whereas the original text made no such statement. Perhaps finally one can note if there was ever an approach that would dry clean a passage, it almost would certainly have to be that one. There's not only not mention of baptism, there's no mention of water at all. Not there in any shape, form, or fashion. This man has removed one of the critical God-given elements in the plan of salvation. It is to be found nowhere in that verse. There's not the slightest hint that baptism is a part of God's plan of salvation. Shame on him. Shame on him for making any such translation to alter, modify, change, and remove the power of what God has placed within the majesty of His divinely revealed will. As you can see in that, also near the bottom, I would ask you to notice this is also what he said. So these who accepted his explanation were initiated, swelling the membership to about 3,000. That's his rendering of verse 41. Isn't it amazing in some of the things that we've heard that there are actually translations available in bookstores and on Amazon.com and other places. People can buy these. What if an individual, upon reading and giving some credence to and interest in a passage like this one, were to think that they can be saved in light of that, they would perhaps proceed through life wholly without knowing what God's truth actually is. 
this is in fact more than a tragedy. Lucas read for us earlier tonight from Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. And on that occasion, we remember the great sternness that surrounded the character of the Word of God. Those who add to the words of the prophecy of this book, this is what was told to John, to them will be added the plagues revealed in this book. On the other hand, to those who would in fact remove or subtract anything from this, their name will be subtracted from the Lamb's book of life. We can appreciate in either way that one's eternal destiny has been sealed. To change the Word of God by either adding to it or subtracting from it, you'll notice that these two translations have added to, taken from, changed at liberty, and seemingly did so, and in fact rejoiced in it. That first gentleman that I misted, that I listed, Dr. Bratcher, you may notice again, he straightforwardly stood in a public venue in Dallas and asserted the Bible is not inerrant. It is not authoritative and it is not to be believed that way. We shouldn't be surprised that in his hands the scriptures were twisted, turned, perverted, and the great power of God was removed from them. We're about to see in some of the next lessons to come, these aren't the only two translations that we must call into question. I would ask you to give some thought to these concluding words to our lesson and our study tonight. Just as surely as we noted, that so-called Good News Bible really isn't good news. It is not a word-for-word translation. Under that banner of dynamic equivalence, it twisted God's Word. And it's not reliable and it is not trustworthy. The same kind of thing can be said about this so-called cotton patch Bible. The man may have been sincere and he may have been very excited to give people in Georgia and the southeastern U.S. of A. a translation that they might feel comfortable with, but shame on him. He changed the Word of God and no man is at liberty to do that. In Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul even put it in words like this. Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. We might notice briefly in closing our lesson that on that occasion, men are not at liberty to change the sacred word of God. Even angels are not at liberty to change it. Paul said, we or an angel, change it. We destroy and pervert it from the greatness of the power delivered and bequeathed within it. Tonight, may we not use this GNB, this CPB. May we, in fact, help others to see that they are not reliable, trustworthy translations. Of course, as we continue in our study, one of the things we'll highlight all throughout is that there are reliable translations. We can read from passages and know that it is the Word of God. When we read Jesus to say in John 8, 24, Except ye believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. The Lord said that. We can believe that. That places on us the responsibility and the requirement of belief. Jesus also said in Luke 13, 3, Nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. One more time, the requirement of repentance asserted for those that would be members of the kingdom of God. The matter of confession. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, we understand there, Paul said, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, just as surely as with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. 
and then there is that commandment. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. No means of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic sophistry can change the fact that that's what God said through the sacred scriptures. Tonight, if you need to respond in the gospel call of invitation to this, we'd be delighted to assist you. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but you have become unfaithful, you've begun to believe things that are not taught in this holy book, you've begun to live in ways that have called into question your devotion and commitment to the way of God, make changes. Come back to your first love under the banner of Revelation 2.5. And we'd be delighted tonight to pray with you and for you to the God of heaven that He'd forgive your sins. And He's promised to do that if you will but repent of them and confess them. Tonight, if we could be of help to anyone in your public response to the gospel of invitation, would you not let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?